You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 35. Welcome everybody. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how to transform your life and business with surgical empathy with Dr. Mark Golston. We'll be talking about listening to versus listening for, insights into imposter syndrome and the fear of irrelevancy, the life-changing power of true connection, and why you're really listening for 1116, and much, much more. In times of great change, we need great leaders, those willing to step up, to take responsibility, to create a vision and inspire others to join them in fulfilling that vision. A key part of that is having conversations with yourself and those you lead. That's what this show is about, better conversations for better leaders. Hey everybody, and welcome to Key Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. Mark Golston. Dr. Mark is a psychiatrist, executive coach, and consultant to major organizations. He is also the author or co-author of seven books, including the international best-selling books, Get Out of Your Own Way, Just Listen, Real Influence, and Talking to Crazy. He has contributed to Harvard Business Review, Biz Journals, Business Insider, Huffington Post, Fast Company, Psychology Today, and appears widely in the media, including CNN, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Fortune, and Forbes, and appears frequently as a subject area expert on television, radio, and podcasts such as this. He has his own podcast called My Wake Up Call, where he interviews influencers about their wake up calls. And today we are very fortunate to have him here on the show. Welcome to the show, Mark. That's a lot to live up to. <laughs> I, I know that you can. I know. And uh, and I want to I want to start out by by pointing out. Um, first of all, congratulations. I, I saw in, in doing research on on all your publications and, and experience that you have been in business for 43 years. And and also, if I got this number correct, please forgive me if, I, if I'm wrong, that you are now or, or just about to turn 73 years of age, yet you don't look a day over 29. Like, how, how, what is your secret? How do you do that? Well, part of it's my immaturity. My, uh, my wife says, it's okay <laughs> that you're immature. Just don't be so proud of it. <laughs> I, I, and I've been thinking about this because people will say, you know, you look pretty young. And, and maybe there's some insight that I can offer your listeners. There's a lot of people who suffer from something called the imposter syndrome. And, the, and if you suffer from the imposter syndrome, it can age you because you're always afraid of being found out. And also inside you, you're, you're afraid of being found out by a sense of you know, inner embarrassment, shame. And and and, I, and I've dealt with imposter syndrome kind of thing, uh, but I think what's kept me young, and I actually was in Moscow, uh, and I was a co-presenter with Daniel Kahneman. He wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. He won a Nobel Prize. But what I introduced to them in Moscow, which I'm going to introduce to you and your listeners, is a way to change the way you communicate and think. And I think it'll keep you young. And what I introduced to the audience, and there's a video clip, you can go to YouTube and it's, there's a shameful amount of video clips on me. Uh, But what I introduced to them, and if you're listening in, write this down. You wanna focus on what people are listening for and then deliver it. 
And what I said to the audience in Moscow, there's about a thousand managers, entrepreneurs, CEOs. And I said, if I focus on what you're listening to, you're listening to me and I deliver a bunch of bullets and I'm engaging and entertaining, you know, you'll give me your mind for an hour and you write down the bullets. You know, you might try some, some will work, some, uh, most of them won't. And then you'll abandon them. But, you know, if I do a good job and I'm engaging, you'll give me, give me your mind for an hour. And then I put on my NPR voice and I said, but if I focus on what you're listening for and you haven't told me it and I get it right and I deliver it, you'll give me everything. So let me see if I get what you're listening for. Actually, I'm going to demonstrate it right now here with you. So there's a listening to energy, and I see you're nodding. So I, you know, you know, even though I go on and on, you're you're not, you know, you're not getting the thing to hook me off. Uh, but let me see if this is what you're listening for, and if I get it right, which I hope I will. Tell me what happens inside your head. Okay. I think what you're listening. I think what you're listening for is you want to give immediate value to your listeners that not only couldn't they get anywhere else, but that they can immediately use to make them more successful. And you're looking for information that is doable by them immediately. Yeah, it's nice to have someone on who's bright and brilliant and yada, yada, yada. But if you're, and you might respect, oh, this person's pretty smart. But if your listeners can't do anything with it, you know, you know, you talk to the person because they have a best-selling book. But I think what you're listening for is you want to do right by your listeners. You want to give them something. Uh, maybe they take notes. They say, I'm going to use that today. And you're also listening for someone you have to protect your listeners from. So you might have a guest on who has an amazing book, but they're a stiff. I mean, you say, oh, I can't post this. How do I get back to this person and say, we can't use it? Because you're listening also for uh, someone that you might have to protect your listeners from. Because you want to give value to your listeners. So is any of that true? I'm trying to be completely aware of my own inner experience and, and also processing what you're saying. And, and it was really, uh, you were spot on to the extent that, you know, you, one could say, Oh, you're, you're a psychic. Right. But, and there's some logic in there, but you are, you're a hundred percent on that. I do care about my listeners getting something that's valuable and immediately applicable. What happened internally for me was I actually, I felt some tingling in my brain, my, what I would call my prefrontal cortex. Right. And, and then as you kept going and then talking about the listeners and protecting them and providing them with value, the protection thing, I felt the warmth inside that was really interesting. And, and the mm -hmm. word that came up to mind, um, in relation to your work and in, in my thinking was empathy. Like I really felt like you understood why I'm here. And that was a very, very profound. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you, God. I, I, I pulled it off again. But, um, <laughs> but, 
but if you're listening in or watching it, um, John shared the experience of when you get where someone is coming from. One of my books uh, is called Real Influence. It's, it's, uh, it's a great book. It's, it's lesser known than the other ones. But what we talked about, and I had a wonderful co-author named uh, uh, Dr. John Ullman, who teaches at the Anderson School at UCLA. But the whole idea of that book <clears throat> is how to go from your here, Y-O-U-R, to there, there, T-H-E-I-R, T-H-E-R-E. And the key to that is being able to totally abandon your here to go to there, there. Uh, I recently wrote something on the fear of empathy. Not the fear of being empathized with, but the fear of using empathy. Because what if you focus on someone else and what they're listening for has nothing to do with what you're selling? What if you know, you've prepared something and what they're listening for, it's a mismatch? And what if you've got all this inventory? What if you've got you know, all, all this investment in R&D and it's not what they're listening for? That's why also, if you're listening, uh, I have become almost a fanatic fan of design thinking. And if you're listening or watching this, do yourself a favor, just look up design thinking. It was made famous by the design company IDEO uh, and Stanford Design School. And what I find wonderful about it is design thinking begins with empathy. And so empathy means really go to there, there. In fact, something that I find fascinating about IDEO, because IDEO is a collection of psychologists, the philosophers, sociologists, computer programs. And basically what they tell people is go out and notice what is it that puts a smile on people's face and what would excite them? What are they looking at that they're smiling at? Look at the world through their eyes and then come up with what would excite them. Or look at what they're frustrated about and think, geez, what is it in their life that really frustrates them and do the opposite? And then what they do at IDEO is they say, go out and notice that stuff and then bring it back in. So you empathize. And I didn't know this was going to be a mini lecture in design thinking, but it is uh, because we're, we're into it. And yeah. then the next step is a problem definition. So you empathize with whoever that intended market is that you want to serve. And it'd be helpful to be a market that is moneyed and will spend their money. Uh, and then you, after you empathize with them, what's the problem that you're solving given that empathy? And then the next uh, step is you, uh, you ideate. Okay, so that's the problem. What would be a solution? Then, then the next step is you come up with a prototype and you put it out there. See if anyone cares. You know, the, the, there are a few things that sad me as much. There's a lot of things now with COVID that sad me. But we've all passed these wonderful mom and pop restaurants and stores that you know are going to be bankrupt in six months. You know, we've passed things where people are just passionate. They love what they do and they 
they think, how could people not love what I love? And it's painful because you can pick up wrong location, wrong product, wrong service. And some of them have invested their life savings and you can't protect them from themselves. So you come up with a prototype and then see what happens and you test it and then you refine it. So I'll give you an example of how I'm doing. So my next book is coming out December 1st and it's called Why Cope When You Can Heal, How uh, Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD. So I'm, I'm a trauma expert. I was a suicide prevention expert. I got a book of PTSD for dummies. But what I was thinking about, here, tell me if you think this, um, this is empathically accurate. I wonder how many people in the world have been through tough times that they got past, but they never got over and they cope. I'd say coping, a very, excuse me, sorry for interrupting, a very high percentage. And they cope, and that's better than not coping, but they're not the same. They don't feel fully alive. Um, they don't know joy. They don't know peace. But coping is better than not coping. But what if they could heal? Uh, it's interesting, as I was testing this idea with people I know have been traumatized, uh, I know we're on to something. I have a wonderful co-author because they start to cry. I said, I'm thinking of writing a book called Why Cope When You Can Heal. And if they've been traumatized, they cry. And I said, what are you crying about? And they look at me and they say, if only. Hmm. What do you mean? I cope. A lot of days I don't cope and you know, I bunker. Nobody sees me. So we're very excited and HarperCollins is, is, uh, is about to do a huge push, which is exhausting me. <laughs> but I'm sharing this and thank you for giving me a long leash. And I hope what we're talking about is relevant. Um, but um, people listening in, watching this, um, use that empathy first step. Don't invest in something. Uh, also, don't surround yourself with people who tell you why it's great. So there's a lot of people who want to support you. That, uh, what you really need, you want supportive people, but you want people who can be critical of it so you can make it better. Can I go back to the, the initial concept you brought up around imposter syndrome and which which i would agree almost every person i've worked with in the last 20 years has had some self-worth issues not feeling good enough and there's many many reasons why people come to those types of conclusions the empathy okay instead of your year you're here they're there when you shifts from a me focus to a you focus does that inherently get them out of that trap of asking those negative questions and connecting to those limiting beliefs that are inside? Well, there's usually two, there may be more, but there are two major co contributors to an imposter syndrome. One is 
I'm incompetent. I, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm hiding it. The second uh, is the world doesn't know that I don't care about it. I care about me. And so I, I'm not saying don't develop competence. You got to be competent because that, because if you're not competent, then you're then you're caught lying. You're BSing people. But I go into the other one, and so when you go to there, there, and you live uh, to be of service. So I'll share something else because I'm 72. I don't think any of your viewers. You know, if you're a viewer and you, you, you probably, I got you by 30 years. So this would be a good time for you to go to the bathroom because you're not going to, this is not relevant to you, but it's relevant to me. Um, uh, I've had seven mentors. My last, they've all died. My last one was a guy named Warren Bennis, big leadership guy. Um, the only thing that he was that was greater than the respect people had from him was the love they had for him. But towards the end of his life, when we would meet, I remember there was one time he said, you know, Mark, I'm trying to be a good sport. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, they parade me around the USC business school to the MBAs and they say, oh, you know, he wrote all these leadership books, but I'm irrelevant. You know, you know people, these young people, you know, I'm irrelevant and I'm trying to be a good sport because I got to be relevant into my 80s. A lot of people aren't relevant, you know, after they push 70. And so I'm trying to be a good sport, but it hurts to be irrelevant. And that really stuck with me. So the way uh, I remain relevant, I believe, is I identify young people who are talented, hardworking, but they have to have values that are beyond just them. They don't just say the words, I want to make a difference. It's a calling they can't get out of their head. And the difference has to benefit other people. And so the way to be relevant, if you're into your 70s, is, do, is find those people and do everything you can to help them land in their future. And do everything you can to help them distill what that future is because We've all heard the expression, you know, you know, don't work too much in your business. You got to work on your business. So I would say, you know, something else you have to work on is, well, why were you born? What do you, you know, besides family and what were you meant to do? Do you have any idea what that is? That's what my wake up call is about. Hmm. Um, that's my opening question. So uh, what's the purpose and your calling that you can't get out of your head? And then, you know, what were the wake-up calls that led you there? And so, so I'm doing this there, there on steroids because I'm, I'm blessed by, and I don't have rooms for more mentees, but, uh, but I'm blessed by the people because we'll drill in and it takes away that part of my imposter thing about making it about me because, because they feel cared about and they are. Does that make any sense? I think it does. I think it does. What is, if I may flip the script a little bit, what was your wake up moment? When did you realize what your purpose was on the planet? Well, <clears throat> um, 
I was a specialist in suicide prevention for 30 years and none of my patients killed themselves. Not a, not a bad track record. Mm. And, um, and I've been trying to figure out what the heck I did. Uh, and I'm introducing it in why coping you can heal. So I'm introducing a, a, a an approach, a field uh, that I'm hoping to grow um, called surgical empathy. And what is surgical empathy? So I, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, uh, go off into something else. So if you didn't go to the bathroom before and you're watching a listing, you can do it this. You can do it now again. Um, so I was a suicide specialist, and here's how I look at people who are feeling suicidal. They're feeling hopeless. And when you're feeling hopeless and powerless and useless and worthless, and life is purposeless and meaningless, it's like, it's like an abscess in the dark night of the soul. And when people give you suggestions and advice, sometimes it works, but a lot of times you can't access it because you're stuck. And so surgical empathy is a way of going into the hopelessness abscess. That's why it's surgical empathy. And you go into it and you keep them company there until they begin to cry from not feeling alone. And as they begin to cry from not feeling alone, I've been doing this for years. Uh, I'm retired, so I, I teach people who are interested in how to do this with their kids that they're worried about. Uh, but when people feel less alone, and my book, Just Listen, is about how do you cause people to feel felt? So the tingling feeling you had when I went into you're trying to protect your viewers and listeners from people that you know, may be brilliant, but you just, you just can't post it. The tingling feeling is you felt felt, not just understood. The tingling feeling was, yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I don't want to have to go back to someone and say, I'm sorry, you know, maybe we can do it over again, but we can't use it. You know, and you might come up with an excuse, a little imposter syndrome excuse, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but you might not want to say we can't use it because my audience would get no value out of it. <laughs> You're not going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so I learned to, listen into people and, and what helped me do that is one of my earliest mentors was what Warren Bennis was to leadership a fellow named Dr. Ed Schneidman was to suicide prevention I mean he was one of the top three people and he would keep uh, we were both at UCLA and he would go see uh, he would go see still suicidal patients that had to be discharged so they weren't acutely suicidal, but you can't keep them there forever. And sometimes the residents didn't want to see them as outpatients because they felt they're going to kill themselves. So Ed would go up, do a consultation, and refer them to me. And I was really fortunate because after my training, I didn't go into an institution where I had to check boxes and then report, this is what I did. Uh, and what happened is I started meeting with this still suicidal people and I'd look into their eyes what I picked up in their eyes that they were screaming at me with their eyes is 
you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time. And I could feel that the more I checked boxes, the more they were running out of time. And so I threw away the boxes and I learned to listen into their eyes. And if you're listening in and you're worried about one of your kids, you're worried about a spouse, but I'm especially keen on helping parents get through to teenagers they're worried about. In fact, there's a good friend of mine whose 14 year old son killed himself two years ago and he reached out to me afterwards. And his name is Jason Reed. And if you look up teen mental health webinar, Jason Reed on YouTube, he did some, he did a Goalcast video. Goalcast is a company that creates eight or nine minute videos. And his had, uh, I think, uh, 9 million views. And he meets with 15 men about how he blew it with his son. And it's chilling and it's riveting, but he's edited it. So you see the 10 minute video and then, and then I'm speaking to parents. So this is how you can get through your kids. Wow. And so if you can relate to that, if you're not just an entrepreneur, but you're a parent, you're worried about a kid. Here's, here's a taste of surgical empathy. Um, while you're doing an activity with them, because they can't stand these you know, heart-to-heart, face-to-face, eye-to-eye conversations that they don't initiate. Teenagers don't want those. So if you're doing an activity with one of your kids that you're worried about, Here's the few questions you ask them. Uh, you say to them, at its absolute worst, how depressed are you capable of feeling? They're gonna go, what? At its absolute worst, how depressed are you capable of feeling? Now they may look at you because this is an unusual conversation. They'll say, what's this about? You say, I have a reason for this, uh, just to answer the question. And they'll look at you and they'll say, pretty bad, dad, pretty bad, mom. And the second question is, and when you were feeling that, how alone do you feel? Why are you asking me this? How alone do you feel? Pretty alone. Pretty alone? or very alone, alone. The reason I'm asking this is because as your parent, I can't allow you to be alone in hell. If you become a parent and you get the owner's manual, don't allow your kids to be alone in hell. It's written there. Then the third thing you say to them is, take me to the last time it happened. Yeah, take me to the last time. Was it 2.30 in the morning and you had a big test and you couldn't get back to sleep? You know, take me to it. And here's an interesting thing. When you get another person, like your teenager, to describe in graphic detail that 2.30 in the morning so that you can see it as their mom or dad, they re-experience it, but they're not alone. Wow. Yeah, I was wandering, wandering around, you know, I couldn't get back to bed. I, you know, I was looking for some Benadryl, you know, I know you have one of your sleeping pills hidden somewhere. And, uh, and I wanted to put my uh, fist through the wall and, uh, uh, and then you keep them talking 
because obviously they didn't do anything. So what did you do? And what happens is as they talk it through and they feel less alone, they may start to tear up. And then what you say to them is, I've got a favor to ask you. Actually, I've got a direct order to give you as my son or daughter. Sometimes it's difficult to get my attention or your mom's attention. You feel this way, you get our attention. You do whatever it takes to get our attention because there's nothing more important than going yeah. to where you're feeling. So anyway, you know, th th you know, th this interview went, I don't know where it went, but uh, hopefully there's something in that. Well, I, I think, you know, I think we all have people in our lives who are suffering, as you said, what's the percentage of people who've been through traumatic, painful experiences and are coping rather than healing. And I know many people who've had children in those situations and, and some made it through and some did not. Um, and first, let me just take a moment. Thank you so much for your contribution to this planet and saving and reaching so many people. It's unbelievable. And for sharing this today. It, it's not our, our standard topic on conversations for leaders, but parents are leaders too. And you have to help them find their way out because you're, I think what do I hear correctly, because we're talking clinically now a little bit, is they're alone and they're in pain. And when they re-experience that, they're still in pain, but they're not alone. And that becomes that bridge to the outside world. And they have that cathartic moment, just like you said, what if you could heal and not just cope when you have that and it's like a bridge and that the, the sadness, maybe the, the tears that come up is a release rather than holding it in. And that that's part of the beginning of the healing process. Is that, is that true? Yeah, it, it's a release. It's a relief and it helps them to feel unlocked. See something else they need to know. Um, and you're right, you know, thank you for giving me the leash. And uh, I, I hope people are listening to this. There'll be a lot of people that will say that, I, that has nothing to do with my business. And, you know, and you know, listen to some of his other episodes then. Um, <laughs> Thanks. But here, here's something that really sort of touched me. Um, but it gives you an insight if you're worried about your kids. Uh, I remember I asked uh, one person I'd seen, I said, what has helped? Yeah, it seems like this is helping. What has helped? And I found this so poignant. He said, um, I'm a burden to everyone. I worry, frighten my parents. My brothers and sisters think I'm a manipulator and there's some truth to that. And there's a part of me that feels like, why don't I, and I'm a burden to myself. So why don't I just relieve everyone of that burden? And I said, so what has helped? And he looked at me and he said, you're the only person who enjoys me. You're the only person who, when I see you, I put a smile on your face. And it's not about did I not just about did I follow through on something did I take medicine that you know was I did I you know yada yada yada, and 
you know, and, and, and he said, at first, I thought you, you know, were looking at someone else, but you have this smile that you're glad to see me. And in that moment that you're glad to see me, and it has nothing to do with whether I'm following treatment recommendations, in that moment, I'm not a burden. He looked at me and he said, I thought you were crazy, but, you know, uh, but clearly uh, you seem to enjoy me. You were crazy for enjoying me. How can you enjoy me? So I'm just sharing that because I, I, it was just so poignant. Does that go to, I mean, when you talk about, you know, it seems like on the on the surface level, they say, well, what does this have to do with my business? The reality is, is that there is a parallel in every single relationship that you possibly have with your employees, with your customers, with your family member, with your kids, because it's really about the connection. The salesperson who has a product and the other person doesn't need it, that's not that's coming from you're here, not they're there. So in all of these situations, the the answer is to create that empathy, to create that connection. Because if you understand where they're coming from, that that's what it's all about. And for this situation, it's acceptance. In this one specific situation, what the power of it wasn't conditional on tasks or behaviors. It was. Just, it sounds like you just really accepted that patient as who they are. Yeah. So I'm going to give a gift to you and the viewers and listeners who have made it this far. Because I'm now going to flip it into something that will dramatically change your success in your business. So when I gave this talk in Moscow, the title of the talk was 1116 change everything you know about communication. Why 1116? Because I made it up and it's memorable. People are curious, what the heck is 1116? So one of the things that I said to the audience to get where they were coming from, uh, and the event planners, I mean, I drove them crazy, but I pulled them off because they said, you know, you're a thought leader, Dr. Goldston. Don't try to engage the audience. I said, all I do is engage, you know. Um, and I said, um, let me see if this is what you're listening for right here, right now. You spent over $500 or, or whatever the Russian thing was, and you sacrificed a day of your time. And so you're listening for 1116. And they look at me with a look that says, this guy is crazy. And I said, oh, don't you know what 1116 is? And I'm saying this because your listeners can use this with investors. They can use it with, uh, especially with B2B sales. Because people will say, and you, and you bring it up, you can say, you know, uh, can I bring up kind of what's, we're not talking about, but I think is relevant to you. So you say that to the investor, you say that to the customer, and they're going to say what? You could say, I've been focusing on what you're listening for from our conversation, from my sales pitch. And I think you're listening for 1116. Now they're going to look at you, they're going to wake up because what the heck is that? You're thinking, what the heck is that, Mark? You know, you've done pretty well so, so far. Let's see if you can pull this one out. Uh, so the 1116. And this is what I said to the audience in Russia. And this is, this, this is true of investors or B2B buyers. Well, you're listening for whether you regret saying yes to me 
one day, one week, and one month from now. And if you spend over $500 and a day of your time, you're looking whether you'll regret having said yes to that one day, one week, one month from now. Uh, uh, because if that happens, you're not coming back. You're not investing. You're not going to buy this if you regret saying yes. Uh, and you might say, so what's the sixth? Well, what you're really listening for is if you say yes in six months from now, um, your boss says to you, so this is the B2B sale, or the investor uh, 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 says yes to you, what they're worried about is that their boss is going to say, why did you say yes to this? Why did you say yes to this investment? Why did you buy this B2B product or service that cost us so much? You overpaid for it. We can't implement it. We can't use it. We can't train people. What the heck were you thinking? So what you're listening for is that you don't want that to happen six months from now. Because if it does, your boss is going to say, you know, um, I had to fix that in our company, what you said yes to. And I dodged a bullet but you didn't. <laughs> That's what you're listening for. And they're intrigued, like, what, well, what is... I said, but here's the other thing you're listening for. You're listening for whether you regret saying no one day, one week, one month from now, six months from now. And you regret saying that if you're an investor, one day, one week, one month from now, six months from now. What if your boss says, you know that business you passed on that we didn't invest in? Guess what? Someone invested in it. And it's called Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so you're listening for, will someone come back to you and say, didn't so-and-so make a presentation to you? Well, they went with another VC firm. Uh, and, uh, uh, or if it's a, uh, uh, or they're gonna regret saying no, if they say no and they have a real problem and you have the solution to their problem and they say no to you, they still gotta solve the problem, <laughs> right? I, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, if they have a problem, they're buying a service or a product, a B2B thing, they still gotta, they gotta solve the problem and they gotta go elsewhere. And not only do they have to go elsewhere, but if you're a really good listener and you open up what they're listening for, they got to go elsewhere and, you know, and deal with someone who doesn't listen at all. They got to go to someone else who's so hard selling them that, you know, they have zero confidence in that product or service. So if you're following and tracking with this, you can actually customize and bring them into the conversation. Uh, and when I've done that, People, they look at you like a deer in the headlights. Like, how did you know that? Well, as you would say, well, you, what, would, what you would say to them, Mark is a little bit empathic. <laughs> and then what you do is you have them talk about it. Say, so if we're tracking, uh, what you really want is six months from now that you say yes and your boss says, Remember that product or service that you bought for us? Or remember that investment you made? Or remember the person, that talented person that you hired for our company? 
it's the best that's happened in five years. Hmm. I'm getting a promotion because you said yes to that. That's what you're really hoping, but that's probably beyond you know what you can imagine. Uh, then you drill down with people. You know, yeah, uh, now that I have your attention, let's say it's six months from now, you're meeting with your boss. What's going to get you promoted in a raise? Huh? No, what's going to get you promoted or raise? It might not have anything to do with what I'm talking to you about, but you know, if I can be service of service to you and it helps, you know, you'll probably take another call from me, uh, you know, a few months from now, even if I didn't sell you anything. So the shift so there. You, the, sorry, please, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. The, the shift no, that's that you, done. You were, you were going to say something, yes? Yeah, thank you. Um, just trying to to understand that the shift there is, is still an extension of you're here and they're there, and you want to get to there there because you're there doing the sale, you're doing the pitch, the presentation, and yeah, they're listening to you. But instead, you're shifting the focus to what are they listening for, and when you what they're really listening even to not not necessarily even aware of what they're really listening for behind what they're even aware of. they think they're there to hear a pitch and the sale what they're really listening for is what's something that can help them in the the long run or can prevent them from having that that pain of passing up on investing in instagram or uber or whatever the case may be so it's shifting Absolutely. to there there yeah okay i i want to yeah. ask so go ahead please continue no no you go go ahead I wanted to ask you about um, talking to crazy and in your work in that sense. And I, and I know you differentiate between, uh, you know, mental illness and, and talking to the craziness that, that we all ha have inside. And what are some tips and strategies in terms of like, how do you know when it's time to walk away from that conversation uh, for where it's not going to go anywhere necessarily, or that you're quote unquote talking to crazy? Well, uh, so a little background about why did I write the book. So when I wrote Just Listen, which is in 25 languages, I'm kind of humbled by that because there was no advertising, no book tour, no anything. So it just word of mouth seems to be still going pretty well. Um, there were two chapters that got a lot of attention. One was Steer Clear of Toxic People. And there's a chapter in Just Listen called How to Go from uh, OF to OK. It's a way to calm yourself down. It's a way to talk yourself down from DEFCON 1 to DEFCON 5. And I got a lot of requests for that. I said, well, it looks like, the, it looks like people are dealing with a lot of difficult people. So talking to crazy is how to deal with the irrational and impossible people that drive you crazy. It's not, it, it's not about mental illness. I'm very compassionate. I mean, I was a suicide expert. Here's a little bit, here's a little uh, unsolicited marketing tip. This is the way the world is. I took a lot of heat from the psychiatric and psychological profession. They say, how can you write a book called Talking to Crazy? Don't you realize how much stigma there is? Don't you realize how difficult it is we can get for people to ask for help? I said, have you read the book? They said, no. I said, first of all, it's not about mental illness. It's about people who drive you crazy. And the point is, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, does it make a sound? 
you didn't read the book, but you called me. Why? Because people can relate to it. And in fact, I check these things out using the design thinking. I check with people. I'm thinking of writing a book called Talking to Crazy. What do you think? Now, these weren't my psychological, psychiatric colleagues. This was in the business world. And just as when the why coping you can heal caused people to cry, when I asked people, I'm thinking of writing a book called Talking to Crazy. What do you think? They didn't cry. They smiled. They said, I need that today. What do you mean? I talk to crazy every day. They drive me nuts. Yeah. You got a chapter when the crazy person's yourself? Oh, yeah, yeah, we cover that. We cover that. So that led to talking to crazy. And here's something that people who drive us crazy all have in common. Um, and I could mention politics, but I'm not going to. But you'll understand what I'm talking about. The way people drive us crazy and get the better of us is they frustrate us, they anger us, they offend us, and they push us into our rage. They outrage us. And if you're uncomfortable with being outraged because it flirts with becoming enraged, and that's not who you believe yourself to be, you'll do anything to get away from them, you'll appease them because you're so uncomfortable with becoming enraged. So here's some tips. On a sheet of paper, put a line down the middle and on the left side, write down all the people that give you energy, that you love having conversations with, uh, that you should spend more time with, that you really need to thank them for being in your life and do that. Because you're, if you take them for granted because you're dealing with the people on the right side of the sheet, that's not a good thing. And the people on the right sheet are the people that drive you crazy. Just the sound of their name, just a text message. Uh, you get a knot in your stomach and in your throat. And, and they can be this cloud over your head for the whole day and you'll try to avoid it. And one of the reasons you'll try to avoid it is because they drive you crazy. And what they do that drives you crazy is they will have a conversation that, uh, that frustrates you, angers you, and outrages you. And so you avoid it. So now here is a, a couple tips. Uh, and what you really want to do when you make that list is those people on the right side who drive you crazy, you want to do an assessment. Uh, what, is, what are the positive things that I'm getting from them to make up for the negative things? And then... Uh, and if the positive things outweigh the negative things, well, you know, then there's ways to talk to crazy and sometimes you can calm them down and I'm gonna give you a tactic right now. So here's a magical tactic called the, it's called the FUD crud. Why is it called the FUD crud? Cause you'll remember it just like 1116, it's memorable. People say, what the heck is FUD crud? I'm glad you asked. Uh, and you can use this in your relationships because it's magical. So imagine someone is venting at you, whining at you, complaining. 
or someone who's sullen. Those people drive you crazy. So know ahead of time that they're going to pull that because they know if they drive you crazy and they get you off balance, they can go for the jugular and your toast. And so knowing that they're going to do that, don't expect them not to do it. Hold a little bit of yourself back. Don't be aloof, but hold a little bit of yourself back. And then when they do that, I have a saying, poise begins with a pause. So what you do is you pause. And when you pause, they're going to get nervous because their manipulation did not work. And, uh, and, and, and you stay with them and they're going to get very nervous. And this is what you say in this tone of voice. You sound frustrated and I think you're holding back. They're going to go, what? Yeah, you sound frustrated and I think you're holding back because I think you're upset and disappointed. That's the FUD. What? Yeah, no, I, you know, you sound frustrated, but I'm guessing you're upset and disappointed too. So, uh, you know, can you fill me in on all those? And why that works is because, see, if you say to someone, you sound upset, they feel like you're scolding them. If you say to someone, uh, uh, you're angry. They say, I'm not angry. You know, they, they take it as talking down to them, but everybody will talk about being frustrated because everybody's frustrated. So, so they lean in. You say, yeah, tell me what you're frustrated about. And then they tell you. And then one of my deepening empathic exercises is whenever they uh, say whatever they're frustrated about, you say, say a little bit more. So you get them to open up even more. And then you transition to upset which is what are you angry about, but we use the word upset. What are you upset about? And you don't disagree with them. You can say, well, you know, you're from your point, I, I can understand all of that. Wow, I can, I can see from looking at the situation from your point of view, phew, I think I'd feel the same way. Um, so you, and then you have them talk a little bit more about that. Then you say, what are you disappointed about? Disappointed in me, disappointed in the, that we're here in the situation maybe disappointed in yourself. And John, maybe you can see that you're going through the layers of an onion. And by the time you get using surgical empathy, all this stuff off their chest, by the time they're talking about disappointment, it's, it may not be a full dialogue, but there's an exchange going on. They're calmer. Mm -hmm. And then what you say, going forward, what needs to be different so you don't have to go through that again? So does that make any sense? It does. I love that. But you had said the FUD crud, right? Did I get that right? Did yeah, we cover? Did we cover? Did we cover the crud part? Well, the crud is just. I could say the FUD technique, but uh, okay. You know, the crud was just was just a, a gratuitous kind of thing because. <laughs> Because dealing with crazy people feels like a cruddy thing to have to do. Fair enough. I love it. It's a great mnemonic device and acronym together. So you, you start on the, the frustration, which is probably the more surface level, then upset. And really what's behind that frustration and upset pseudonym acronym uh, or uh, for anger is the disappointment. 
the difference between their expectation and the reality of their experience at this point in time. And you are employing that empathy to really get to their there. I think that's a fantastic technique. Thank you so much. And, and I want to respect your time. I do. I did one more question to ask you, if you don't mind real quick. Um, I know you've had countless conversations over the last several decades and, you know, at key conversations, you know, I think conversations are a huge part of communicating empathy and finding out where is there there and what are they listening for? What has been one of the more uh, impactful or distinctive conversations that has impacted you either personally or professionally, if you don't mind? Um, I can take a little bit more time if I can share a story with you, which sure. will explain how did he become this empath? Yeah. Um, why, how come he was effective as a suicidal prevention expert? Maybe this could be my, probably my greatest personal accomplishment. Uh, you know, besides, you know, long marriage, great kids, grandkids, and all that stuff. I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. I don't know anyone who dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I had, I think, untreated depression. And I dropped out the first time because my mind just wasn't working. I worked in blue-collar jobs. My mind came back. And then I came back to medical school, and then the depression came back again. And I was at a low point. And I met with the dean of the school, who's about funding. And looking at it from his point of view, I could see you know, him thinking I wasn't really a good investment, because every time someone took a leave of absence, they lost matching funds. So he sends a letter to the dean of students, my first mentor. See, I didn't know about mentors because I didn't want to be a burden to anyone. And the, and the dean of students after, calls me after I met with the dean of the school. And he says, Mark, I have a letter here from the dean of the school. You better come in. Because I think the dean of the school, you know, he just wanted to cut their losses, but he didn't want me to do anything drastic. Kill myself. I don't know you I was thinking of that, but I don't know. So the Dean of Students calls me in and he says, read this letter. And the letter says from the Dean of the school, I've met with Mr. Goulston. We talked about an alternate career. Uh, and I'm advising the promotions committee that he'd be asked to withdraw. Because I was miraculously passing everything. I wasn't a stellar student. So they couldn't really flunk me out because I wasn't flunking. And I looked at the Dean of Students and I said, what does this mean? Because I was at a low point and I came from a background where you're only worth what you do in the world. If you don't do and you don't produce, you're not worth much. I mean, you know, it's that kind of background from childhood. It's not that unusual, depression age parents. And so knowing that since I didn't think I could do that much, I probably wasn't worth that much. So this is what he said to me. Uh, he said, you've been kicked out. And I kind of cratered. He said that, and I remember it, it, it's, it's like I, it's almost like I folded over like a gunshot wound. And I know what that's like, because I, I had a perforated uh, uh, colon 12 years ago and almost died. It was exactly the same feeling. I, whew, 
and and I felt something wet on my cheekbones, and I thought I was bleeding from my eyes. So this, you know, I'm, I'm not religious, but it gets a little bit. And I'm looking at my fingers. I'm looking for blood, and it was tears. And he said, "Mark, so imagine this: you come from a place where what you know is conditional approval." And he says, "Mark, you didn't screw up." because you're passing miraculously, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think this school would one be one day be glad they gave you a second chance. So I just start to cry, talk about empathy. What? I don't know if it was empathy, it was compassion and kindness, what? And as if that wasn't enough to make me cry, with relief, he said, Mark, uh, even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. And then he said, you have a, you have a goodness streak in you that we should grade in medical school, but we don't. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you won't know it till you're 35, but you need to make it till you're 35. And you deserve to be on this planet and you're gonna let me help you. And then he arranged an appeal. And I guess uh, the promotions committee who I had, then, you know, they, they grilled me, but I think they saw something in me that he did. But the combination of Someone seeing that you have value for who you are and not what you do. That you have a future that you can't see. That they would go, because he was a PhD and he was going against the dean of the school. So someone who would stand up for you at their own risk. So all of those combined. And I think that's what I did with my suicidal patients. I paid it forward for 30 years. Sure did. That's phenomenal. And thank you for sharing that story and um, your compassion, your empathy that that you continue to share with the world and to find those mentors to, to shape their future and help them step into that future that they have in front of them. It goes without saying, I mean, it's an incredible, incredible journey that you are on right now. What is the best way for people to find out more um, about your upcoming book and all the other books and to, to stay connect with you so they can, you know, know that they have a place in the world too? I got to tell you, John, I like the change in your tone of voice. It's not entrepreneurial, but boy, is it accessible. Thank you. Um, I, I mean that. Uh, I have a website, markgoulston.com, and I am a prolific blogger. Um, I go to sleep and I wake up in the middle of the night, and um, part of Warren Bennis's words stay with me because when I turned 60, I said, Warren, I think I'm too old. You know, these young people, it's their turn. And he said, Mark, my 70s were my best decade because 
all the dots of my life started to connect spontaneously. I started to make sense out of things that I could never make sense out of. And I didn't try to offend people, but I didn't care what I said or expressed myself. Uh, some people will like it, some people won't like it. And so that's what's happening now. The dots are just connecting crazy. So if you go to markgulston.com, I got articles there. If you go to HBR, I got some articles there. If you go to LinkedIn, I got articles there. Uh, Thrive Global, I throw stuff up there. Uh, but markgulston.com is, uh, uh, you'll see what I'm up to. But we're having a whole dedicated website to the next book, Why Coping You Can Heal. Because, uh, and I think HarperCollins was right. They said, you know, healthcare workers who are busy and traumatized, they're not going to want to go searching at markgulston.com to find out about this. So we're going to have, so uh, very shortly, there will be a website called whycopewhenyoucanheal.com. Uh, or we might use the abbreviation, uh, uh, what is it? W-C-W-Y-H, whycopewhenyoucanheal.com. But it'll be up there, and um, uh, the book coming out December 1st. There's all kinds of stuff that we're giving out there, um, bonus materials. Fact one, can I give you another little tip that people might like? Absolutely. You're so good. I mean, you know, it, this this doesn't have to have a beginning and an end. It just goes on and on and uh, and and. And yes, thank you for respecting my time. I just checked it. I got time, so okay, you're gonna have great. to chase me off the show. So, uh, <laughs> so one of the, so one of the things that will uh, is one of the bonus uh, features, I guess, if you go to the website or buy the book, is called the Hoover technique, H-U-V-A. And John's thinking this sounds like fun crud. Okay, Mark, what's the Hoover technique? Totally. So the Hoover technique. So the Hoover technique is if you practice this every day, it'll change your life. If you do the fun crud, it'll change conflicts you're having. But if you practice the Hoover technique, it'll not only change your life, it will really help lessen the imposter syndrome. And what the Hoover technique means and by the way, you don't know it, but on a scale of one to 10, you're a 10 in each of those. So think of at least once a day, pick one conversation, and at the end of the conversation, grade yourself according to how the other person felt about the conversation. So on a scale of one to 10, and you'll see that you did really well. H is... Did the other person feel heard out? I have felt heard out by you and then some. Did the other person feel understood? Your questions to clarify things showed understanding. Did the other person feel valued uh, about what they said? I have felt really valued by you, John. Thank you. And the final thing is that the other person feel that you added value 
you know, as opposed to shanghaiing and making it about you. You've added value. So you've taken, you know, what we've talked about and you've added to it. And so if you practice the Hoover technique and don't beat up on yourself when you realize that most people are not very good at this. But what will happen, engrage yourself and just get better at it. What will happen is the relationships you have with people, and this, if you're a business person, this can be customers, this can be clients, this can be your employees, this can be investors. If you improve yourself in terms of how they felt heard, understood, valued, and you added value, they're going to lean towards you and they're going to want more of you because they're not getting that from anyone. That's incredible. I love that. It brings it into your intention, your mindfulness about how you're showing up. It's mostly about the other person, but you have to show up in that that conversation too. It can't just be all about them. You have to add value, as you say. Thank you for sharing that wonderful gift. I'm so glad that we that we did that. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I will put all the links in the show notes. And again, Dr. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you, John. I, 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 what they say at the end of, uh, what was the Humphrey Bogart movie? Uh, where at the end he says uh, he says to the person, I think this is the beginning of a, a good good relationship. A, a beautiful Casablanca. friendship. Casablanca. Is, that, is that the Casablanca. one? Yeah, I think this Casablanca. is the beginning of a beautiful friendship or something like that. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I certainly yeah. hope it continues beyond our conversation, and I look forward to staying in touch as well. And for those of you who haven't yeah. checked out, please check out all the resources in the show notes. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. Thanks for listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. If you enjoyed the show, please let us know. Give us a rating or write a review. And if you'd like to connect with me and other like-minded leaders, I invite you to join our brand new Facebook group called Develop, Empower, and Lead. If you go to developempowerlead.com, it will redirect you right there. Hope to see you there soon.